The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Hear, you peoples, all of you, pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it, and let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place, and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. And the mountains will melt under him, and the valleys will split open, like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. All this is for the transgression of Jacob, and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards. And I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces. All her wages shall be burned with fire. And all her idols I will lay waste. For from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them. And to the fee of a prostitute they shall return. For this I will lament and wail. I will go stripped and naked. I will make lamentation like the jackals and mourning like the ostriches. For her wound is incurable and it has come to Judah. It has reached to the gate of my people to Jerusalem. For the moment, let's stop right there. Let's go to the Lord. Father, I pray that we would have, by your grace, a right frame of heart, a right temper of heart to hear your word, a hard word, the word concerning judgment. I pray, Father, that every heart here would be ready and happily willing to hear and to accept whatever you speak. We know, Father, that your word is, is filled with pleasant words, pleasant promises, comforts, encouragements. Father, there are also words here that make us tremble, that humble us. I pray, Father, we be ready to receive those words also. And not only willing to accept them for ourselves, but even willing to speak them to the world that is in so desperate need of hearing and believing. I pray, Father, as always, because our need is always, please give to us your Holy Spirit. We're in desperate need of your help. So make us believing and obedient by the work of your Holy Spirit within us. We ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. There is no sin that has ever been committed, and there is no sin that ever will be committed that is not already caught. When is the last time you have thought, nobody sees, nobody knows, I got away with it? Everyone has had that thought at some time. And everyone has been wrong. Nobody gets away with anything. 
it would not surprise me at all because I've been there. If there was someone here with a hidden sin that was thinking, I'm the exception to that. I'm getting away with it and I will continue to get away with it. We have so much deception operating in our hearts and it's it's hard for me to think of a worse deception. There are, again, there are many. But what worse deception could there be than to think nobody sees, nobody knows, I got away with it. To sin and to think yourself safe and secure in your sin. There is no sin that has ever been committed. There is no sin that will ever be committed that is all, not already caught. I want to this morning, establish three truths concerning the judgment of God from this text. And here are the three truths. Judgment is inescapable. Judgment is personal. And finally, judgment is unbearable. And I want us to also answer the question, what must our response be to the word of God's judgment? What must our response be to the word of God's judgment? First of all, I'll just mention two things now. We must hear the word of God's judgment, and we must mourn the word of God's judgment. Look back at verse 1. It says in the beginning, The word of the Lord that came to Micah. The opening word of Micah's message is that this isn't Micah's message. From the first word to the last word, this is God's message. And every single one of us need to hear this word because it is from God. We must give the word, the word of God, the same reverence that we would give to the person of God because it's from Him. If we don't pay attention to the word, we're not paying attention to Him. If we don't give it reverence, we're not giving reverence to God Himself. If we dismiss this, we dismiss God. If we think it irrelevant, then we think God irrelevant. If we don't believe the Word, then we're not believing God. This is God's Word. And so it is declared in verse 2. It is commanded, Hear, you peoples, all of you. Pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it. And let the Lord God be a witness against you. God has a message that he is going to deliver through the prophet Micah to, it says at the end of verse 1, the message concerns Samaria, which is the capital city, was the capital city of Israel, the northern kingdom, and Jerusalem, the capital city of Judah. But, we see in verse 2, we're all to hear. This includes you and me. Everyone is called to pay attention to God's Word. Why is that? Because the Lord is bearing witness against all the earth. He is the prosecutor in this case. He is the witness who has seen everything and knows it all. And He is the judge in this case who will make the decision. The Lord is calling all of us to hear. So we weren't there in Samaria. We weren't there in Jerusalem then. And we've never been to those 
places. None of that matters. The Lord is calling all of us to hear. Even though he is directing his attention specifically to the sin of those peoples, he is calling all peoples to hear because we've all followed in the pattern of the sins that are being indicted, the sins that are being condemned. And if we follow the pattern of sin, then we will also follow in the pattern of judgment. If the sins are ours, the judgment from God will also be ours. For a moment, those cities had an opportunity to repent. Israel let the opportunity pass by and was judged quickly. Judah was more faithful to hear the word of the Lord through Micah. And they did repent and they sought after God. And God spared them from the immediate judgment of 701 B.C. But they didn't stay repentant. And they didn't stay seeking. We have an opportunity to repent. As the Bible says, this is the day of salvation. So we must hear the word of promised judgment so that we will repent. You do know, don't you, that you will stand before the bar of God's judgment? That there is no one exempt from that? The Bible says it is appointed for a man to die once. Your day is appointed already. And after that, it says, comes judgment. The Bible says we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. We will all stand before God's judgment. I'm not saying that you will receive like Israel did and like the unbelieving do the sentence of guilt and condemnation. I am saying, however, as the Bible very clearly does, that no one is exempt from standing before God on this day of reckoning. All will stand before the judgment seat to give an account. And the message is plain, the word is plain through Micah, that judgment is, first of all, inescapable. Judgment is inescapable. Look again at verse 3. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. In ancient times, people tended to do two things primarily with the topographical high places. Two things. First of all, they turned them into centers of defense because they thought, as makes sense, that they could uh, escape the reach of the enemy. So the high places were turned into centers of defense. Samaria was upon a mountain. Jerusalem is upon a mountain. It it just makes sense to keep your, your central main city in a high place in order to escape the reach of the enemy. They also turned high places into centers of worship because the thinking goes, you are within reach, you are getting within reach of the gods. That was their thinking. So they turned uh, the high places into centers of defense and centers of worship. They thought that on the high places, they were safe and secure. They put their trust in the high places. Again, Samaria was a high place. Jerusalem was a a high place, literally, and in ways of worship as well. The Lord will come down and tread upon the high 
places of the earth. There is no high enough place when you are under the judgment of God. And no matter how high you reach, we are all under God. All of us, everywhere, at all times and places, we are under God. And we are all exposed to His sight. There is nothing hidden from the Lord. Every word on your tongue, the Lord knows it before it's there. Every thought that ends up being lodged in your mind, the Lord knows it before it finds its place. Everything is exposed to God. He is all-knowing. He is all-seeing. There's no high place to escape from Him. He will tread the high places that we trust instead of trusting in Him. It says the mountains will melt under Him. And the valleys split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. Judgment is inescapable. People tend to think I can run so far away in the opposite direction maybe than God wants me to be, like Jonah, and think I will escape the judgment of God. But judgment is inescapable because God is inescapable. Where will you go? The mountains? They'll melt. Where will you go? The valleys? They will split open. Now, why does God speak in these terms? Is he just trying to frighten us? He's not just trying to frighten us. He does intend for us to be frightened. He does intend that we tremble before his might, before his holiness, and before his judgment. It is right for our knees to knock. He wants you and I to know ahead of the judgment that he takes our sin very Seriously. And if we do not turn away from the high places that we trust in, if we do not turn away from the idols and turn to trusting in God, turn to serve the living God and to wait for His Son from heaven, Jesus whom He raised from the dead, if we don't turn away from our idols, we will not be delivered from the wrath to come. It will be inescapable. The unrepentant will find no place on this earth to escape the cataclysm of judgment. Think about it. If he brought creation into being by a word, what will it take for God to melt it and to split it open? How could there be somewhere hidden from his view out of his reach? What is this for? Why this judgment? Micah says it is for the transgression of Jacob. It is for the sins of the house of Israel. At the end of verse 5, he asks, what is the transgression of Jacob? And answers in a rhetorical question, is it not its capital, Samaria? The same goes for Judah in the south. What is the high place of Judah? He asks and he answers, is it not its capital, Jerusalem? The respective hearts of these respective kingdoms throbbed with sin. The the centers of life, the, the capital cities, the centers of life, centers of politics, centers of worship, had become centers of sin. And so the promise in verse 6, the consequence for Samaria is that that lofty place built upon a mountain, will be torn down and turned into a worthless heap of ruin in the valley and stripped right down to its bare bone foundation. And what will happen to the gods that they trusted in upon the high places? 
the false gods, the idols. The Lord promises in verse 7 that all her carved images shall be beaten to pieces, all her wages shall be burned with fire, and all her idols I will lay waste. The false gods that she hoped in, the false gods that our world trusts in, will be consumed, will be destroyed. And so when Assyria marched into Samaria in 725, it held that city siege for three years. In 722, it was destroyed, and naturally, in that destruction, many of the false gods and the idols were included, beaten to pieces, burned with fire, and laid waste. Many others, as we see at the end of verse 7, were carted away back to Assyria. Israel was guilty of selling its soul for the false gods of the nations. And so often throughout Scripture, this idolatry is condemned as spiritual adultery, infidelity to God. They forsook the God of the covenants. And so that included in that selling of its soul for the false gods, they adopted some of the exact same practices, like the pagan cultic prostitution rites in the temples and so on. Israel did the same. That's why it says, from the fee of a prostitute, she gathered the idols to herself. And to the, to the fee of a prostitute, they shall return. Meaning that as Assyria destroyed many of the idols, it also carried many of them back to be used in its temples, in its pagan cultic prostitution rites, and so on. So that they could be continue to receive the false hopes of people, but eventually come to nothing, come to ruin. Listen to the warning of Scripture. This is twice in Psalms. It says that those who make idols will become like them. Those who trust in idols will become like them. Lifeless, for one thing, and under the destruction of God, for another. What is the response that the people of God should have to the word of God's judgment? First of all, we must hear. Whatever God says, we are his people. We must hear. We must not say, this is too unpleasant for us to consider. You know, let's talk about something else, something that makes us feel better, more fulfilled, and so on. We must hear all of God's word, because all of God's word, pleasant or not, is good. It's all good. So we must hear. And as we see from Micah's example in verses 8 and 9, we must mourn. Earlier in our Sunday school hour, we were talking about how one day the people of God will rejoice when the cataclysmic judgment comes. The people of God will rejoice that God has fulfilled His promise to make everything right, to destroy all that is evil. We'll rejoice one day. But that doesn't mean... We don't mourn for those who are lost. We certainly do. Look at what Micah does. He says, he laments and he wails. He, he, he does the extreme of what was typical in times of grief. He says, I will go stripped and naked. I will make lamentations, lamentation like the jackals in mourning, like the ostriches. He's going to, to weep and he's going to wail at this word of God's judgment. He hears it, he receives it, and he mourns over what God has to say. 
and there's two, two very different reactions from mourning that we might fall into. We might say, like the person who says, no one sees, no one knows, I got away with it. We might say, that will never happen to me. In smug unrepentance. Not me. I'm not going to be judged. I mean, God loves me. Just look at me, right? On the other hand, there's the person who kind of folds their arms, looks down at people, and says, I told you so when the judgment comes. I told you so. They have that attitude of condemnation of judgment. But the smug, unrepentant will perish. And those who simply judge will be judged. Remember what our Lord Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. We must hear the word of God and mourn over the word of God's judgment. Mourn. Mourn our sin and mourn... Do you grieve over the sin of the world? Or do you you just rail against the sinners? That's not what Jesus did. As I reminded the Sunday school class this morning, remember what he did when he came into Jerusalem. Before that world put him on the cross, he wept over the city. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. He longed to gather the people under him like a hen gathers her brood. That's what he said. This is what I long for. But he said, what makes for peace is hidden from your eyes. So as he foretold the city's judgment, he wept. Do you grieve and do you mourn over the word of God's judgment? That is certainly their appropriate response for the people of God. Why? Because God makes very clear in these several verses God's judgment is inescapable. God's judgment, we also see, beginning in verse 10, is very, very personal. Beginning in verse 10, Micah serves a wake-up call to the people of Jerusalem. And he begins to name one city and town after another that will be in the path of the encroaching army of Assyria. Let's read down through verse 15. Micah says, tell it not in Gath. Weep not at all. And Bethlehem, roll yourselves in the dust. Pass on your way, inhabitants of Shafir, in nakedness and shame. The inhabitants of Zanan do not come out. The lamentation of Beth Ezel shall take away from you its standing place. For the inhabitants of Maroth wait anxiously for good, because disaster has come down from the Lord to the gate of Jerusalem. Harness the steeds to the chariots, inhabitants of Lachish. It was the beginning of sin to the daughter of Zion, for in you were found the transgressions of Israel. Therefore you shall give parting gifts to Moresheth Gath. The houses of Akzib shall be a deceitful thing to the kings of Israel. I will again bring a conqueror to you, inhabitants of Meresha. The glory of Israel shall come to Adullam. Strange verses, I know but they make sense. What Micah is doing is naming, again, one town and one city after another that Assyria will conquer on its way to the gate of the capital, Jerusalem. And what he's doing is he's taken every name and he's playing 
on the literal meaning of the name of that town or city and thus instructing them. So let me walk through these real quick. And I want you to look down at your Bibles so you can see the names as I go. Actually, let me first mention before I start that, what he says at the beginning of verse 10 is, tell it not in Gath. Do you remember uh, a few hundred years before this, when David heard that King Saul, his enemy, but whom he recognized as the Lord's anointed, that King Saul had died in battle with his son Jonathan, who was David's loyal friend, his response was, tell it not in Gath. A a national tragedy had occurred. Gath was one of the closest Philistine cities to Judah. And he didn't want the news to be told in Gath because he didn't want to give the enemies of Judah any opportunity to rejoice at the tragedy that God's people had suffered. So he said, tell it not in Gath. That, That lamentation became a proverb. And that's how Micah is using it. National tragedy is at the doorstep again for Judah. And so he begins his lamentation. Tell it not in Gath. Do not let our enemies hear of it, lest they have cause for rejoicing over us. He says, weep not at all. But as we will see, the weeping is inevitable. Okay, now let's walk through these several towns and cities. Bethlehem literally means house of dust. Shafir means beautiful. Zanan means to come out. Beth Ezel means house of standing. Moresheth sounds like the Hebrew word for bride. Akzib means deceitful. Marisha sounds like the word for conqueror. I know I skipped over Lachish. Uh, I also skipped over um, Maroth. But these will do. This I want you to understand what is the effect here. Okay, so keeping those in mind. Bethlehem meaning house of dust. This, this is the effect of what he's saying. House of dust. In your grief, you will roll in the dust. Beautiful city. You will pass on in nakedness and shame. Town of coming and going. You will never come out again. House of standing. You will be taken away. The town of brides will be wed to Assyria. The town of deceit will be an empty promise of salvation. The conquering town will be conquered. Lachish. It's one I didn't mention earlier. This was one of the largest cities in Judah. And it would fall to Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, when he came marching on his way to Jerusalem. You would think that Lachish would be safe. The walls of this city were 20 feet thick. And a few hundred years earlier, when Solomon was king, do you remember God's commandment that the kings should, should never multiply chariots and riches and wives? And Solomon disobeyed that commandment. We know about the wives, but he also did it with the chariots. He multiplied many chariots, and one of his chariot cities was the city of Lachish. Notice again what it says. Harness the steeds to the chariots, inhabitants of Lachish. But the word for steeds here is not the word war horses, which would be typically used when talking about horses that would be harnessed to chariots. Instead, the word means race horses or maybe swift courier horses. They are told to harness 
the steeds, to the chariots, not to fight, not to resist, but to flee, because they will be conquered. And at first it sounds strange, but he says in verse 13, it was the beginning of sin to the daughter of Zion. What was the beginning of sin? Placing the chariots there. Because the chariots just became another idol. We know that eventually Solomon would give his heart, because of the influence of his wives, to many false gods. This was the beginning. This was the beginning of end for Judah when Solomon disobeyed these commandments. You think, we might think, you know, that's just a smart thing for a smart king to do. Defend the capital by putting a bunch of chariots in a city heavily defended that's, you know, close by. But it became an idol for them. They trusted in chariots and they trusted in their own ingenuity and so on rather than in God. So this was the beginning of sin to the daughter of Zion, for in you were found the transgressions of Israel. Sennacherib would conquer this city and he would end up going back to Assyria and to Nineveh and boasting in the annals that he had recorded of his great victories in Judah, including Lachish. He would boast, and we know this because these these documents and so on have been recovered, that he boasts about his victories and how he took away from Judah 200,000 slaves. What he doesn't say in the boasting of his annals is he doesn't talk about why he goes back to Assyria. He doesn't talk about how he was turned away from Jerusalem. And you remember, we talked about this last week, Hezekiah the king, who is in Jerusalem, ended up at the word of Micah and Isaiah from the Lord, turning to God and entreating his favor and pleading with God and seeking his face. And God sent the angel of the Lord into the camp of Assyria and took the lives of 185,000 soldiers. So Sennacherib was turned back ends up boasting of all his conquests, but not talking about why he, why, Sennacherib, did you not defeat Jerusalem? Isn't that why you're there? It goes without mention. He doesn't want to include that. He's a typical politician. You know, he wants to play up the victories and things. It also says, the glory of Israel, in verse 15, shall come to Adullam. The glory of Israel is a poetic reference to the king. Do you remember when David was forced to fly? One of the places that he fled to was the caves of Adullam. That's where he found refuge from Saul. They were on the brink of the Davidic dynasty. was on the brink of disaster even before it got started. And now it will be on the brink of disaster again. And the glory of Israel shall come to Adullam. They will fly. They will be forced into hiding, is what Micah is saying, if there is not repentance. All of this sounds so abstract and out there, doesn't it? I mean, we, we weren't there. This cataclysmic judgment that's described about the, the mountains melting and the valleys being split open and all of this stuff, foreign names to us, judgment sounds so far away. But why are the names of these cities being brought up to snap the people of God to attention, to rivet their attention on God's word, to have them humbled and prostrate before God who is the judge. Judgment is very personal. 
And no one will think it's so far away and abstract when we stand before the judgment seat. No one. Judgment will be very personal on that day. The effect of this is like, let's say that judgment was coming and and being written about in advance. uh, Judgment was coming to North Louisiana. God sent a warning message written down. And there were a bunch, let's say, ten cities in North Louisiana named as representatives of, of sin, and the judgment would come, that would come. And we're, we're hearing this being read, and all of a sudden, Downsville is mentioned. Let's, and let's say that the name was played off of, it would sound like this, maybe. Downsville, you will descend to death. What would that do? We would all of a sudden be thinking, it's not so far away. It's coming to our doorstep. Judgment is personal. Our offenses against God are personal. And so judgment from God will be personal. Judgment is also unbearable. It's inescapable. It's personal. And it's unbearable. Look at verse 16. Make yourselves bald and cut off your hair. For the children of your delight, make yourselves as bald as the eagle, for they shall go from you into exile. I know that this sounds strange, but recall throughout the Old Testament what the people of God did when they grieved. They tore their clothes, they put on sackcloth, they sat in ashes, they cut off their hair. That was a sign of grief. Micah is saying, go to this extent, make yourselves bald, cut off your hair, or as bald as the eagle... Go to that extent because of the extent of judgment and the extent of the grief that you will experience. Judgment is unbearable. Imagine standing in the city of Lachish, for example, and seeing your own children being bound by Assyrian soldiers, hands tied behind their back all in a row, rope between person to person to person and marched off to Assyria. You would never see them again. You didn't want to even think of what sufferings would accompany that trip. Would they even make it? Would they survive? Judgment is unbearable. There's nothing worse that we could think of than seeing our children experience something like that. Micah is saying, Judah... That's coming to you. We think our sins are so small, don't we? And so we think that what God does is out of proportion to what we have done. And that's why so many people have compromised when it comes to the eternality of hell. They say that those who are in hell will not suffer forever, but they'll be annihilated or they'll have a second chance or... There are many people who believe those things because they can't imagine God doing that in response to our sin. It's out of proportion. God is cruel and God is unjust. We think our sins are so small. But the smallest of sins has the gravest of consequences. We think this sin is a small sin. God's not going to pay it any mind. I can get away with it. Like a little slap in God's face is not a great offense. 
Or we think this is just a small obedience. You know, for example, being together with the people of God for worship on the Lord's Day, that's a small obedience. God won't even notice if it's missing. I don't have to give it. Like our great God is not worthy of the smallest gifts that we can bring to Him. And in the day of judgment, we will think very differently about sin and obedience both. It is better to change our minds about these things now. In the day of salvation, every sin is caught already even before it's committed. And every obedience is noticed. No one gets away with anything. And every obedience is rewarded. The smallest sins have the gravest consequences. Look at how the people of Judah are suffering as they see their children being taken away. The sins of Judah's fathers paved the way to Assyria. And the sins of America's fathers are paving the way to hell for their children. Where are the men who will shepherd their children? Who will not pave the way to hell for them, but lead them on the straight and narrow way and show them all their life long the goodness of that way. Sin will cost the unrepentant everything. People say that hell is cruel and unjust, but this is lunacy. People who will have nothing to do with God expect to hang on to His gifts forever. It's impossible. It's illogical, really, that you would keep forever receiving the gifts of the giver that you reject. So life and light and health and well-being and, and family and fellowship and comfort and joy and beauty will all be withdrawn. So what will be the experience of hell under the judgment of God? Every appetite that a man has will be eternally inflamed, famished for the gifts that have been withdrawn. agonizing. Hell is simply the most natural consequence to the rejection of God. Micah says, hear the word of the Lord. If we would be spared the condemnation of God because we took this word to heart, who cares what discomfort it causes us for a moment Is it not worth it to hear the most unpleasant and most terrifying words of Scripture if by hearing them and taking them to heart we are spared the promised destruction? We are the people of God. Let us hear all the words, all of them, and let us believe. And you, again, must believe that this word from Micah speaks to us of our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, as we spoke of last week from Matthew 17, when Moses and Elijah, those former prophets, 
were taken away from that scene upon the holy mountain, remember what the Lord said. He said, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. And again, the reminder of Hebrews chapter 1, I think, can't promise, but I think that you will hear this enough over the next several weeks that you will have this, hopefully, in your memory and in your heart by the time we're through. The Word of God declares long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. God says, listen to him. He says, he has spoken by him. So let's tune in to the word of Jesus. Jesus himself said, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. So what does this message, you might think, have to do with thanksgiving? It has everything to do with thanksgiving. What do we do in response to the word of God's judgment? We must hear the word of God's judgment. We must mourn over the word of God's judgment. And we must believe in the one whom God has sent and give thanks for him. Judgment number one is inescapable. So let us all turn to the one who was offered many escapes and rejected them all. Even when those escapes in the form of angels were at his beck and call, he refused the way of escape. And he went to the cross on our behalf. Even though the tempter came him, came to him, um, in, in the beginning of his ministry and waited for many other opportune times, even though the way of escape was offered him, he refused on every occasion, tempted in every way that we are yet without sin. He was going to obey the Father and he was going to go to the cross. Judgment is inescapable. And so let us turn to the one who refused escape from judgment and laid down his life of his own accord. Second, judgment is very personal. And so let us turn to the one who suffered it personally, to the man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, despised and rejected. And let us turn to the one in faith who calls to us personally, who says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And third, judgment is unbearable. And so let us turn to the one who bore it, who bore our griefs and carried our sorrows, who was pierced for our transgressions. Let us turn in repentance for our sin, turn away from our idols to him on whom the Lord laid all our iniquities, on him of whom we sang earlier was crushed for our sin who bore. Judgment is unbearable, so let us turn to the one who bore in his own body our sins upon the tree, because by his wounds we are healed. Unpleasant, uncomfortable words 
Micah chapter 1, you better believe it. But let us hear the word of the Lord that we may fly in faith, in hope to our Savior, the one who took our judgment upon himself because he has promised that when we hear his word in faith, we have passed from judgment to life. Let us pray. Father, I pray that the people of God, all of us, would hear the word of God all. And not stop our ears up, cover our ears, and ignore what you have said, and turn to what is more favorable and pleasant or whatever. I pray that we would hear it all, so that we would believe, so that we would more and turn to you repentant, honest about who we are and about what we deserve. I pray, Father, that nobody would think that they're the exception to the rule. Nobody would think that they can escape. Nobody would think that you don't see, you don't know, that they'll get away with it. I pray, Father, that you, by the power of your irresistible spirit, would convince each one that judgment is inescapable. So that, Father, we would turn to Jesus, who refused all escapes and bore in his body our sin and our judgment upon that tree. Our judge, the Lord Jesus, is our Savior. I pray that everyone here would turn to him believing, trusting, now and forever. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.